Uh, well, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm sorry I'm on a time uh, poor day, time short day. Uh, the theme I'd like to explore in terms of financial centers and beyond sustainability is the proper use of markets. Uh, we, I, I believe, uh, as an industry, are actually not true to our own core values of markets. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I run uh, three large indices and many others, but the Global Financial Centers Index, the Smart Centers Index, and the Global Green Finance Index. So I have a pretty big view of it, but I'm a very committed environmentalist. I did environmental research in the 70s and still hold a position at UCL in sustainable construction and helped set up the World Conservation Monitoring Center in the early 80s and on and on. So there's some credentials there. But the most important thing is that in 1984, I moved into the city from science. And I had my very first debate on climate change. It's not a surprise. It was a well-known factor. Any of you in the analyst community will know that smokestacks are the great negative externality. Bees are the great positive externality. And we had a debate. And that debate concluded 38 years ago, where it would conclude right now with that community, which is, does society want to pay for it? It's as straightforward as that. And a lot of the stuff I see in terms of you know, measuring your carbon and uh, ESG and it's all very worthy stuff, but it isn't going to get us there and it's a waste of time. Uh, what's really going to drive it is markets. Now, I probably ought to set down a little marker here that ESG is wider than carbon. Most clearly it's wider than carbon. And I think that the ESG approach is potentially extremely useful in areas like forestry or water, certainly in terms of biodiversity and set aside which is almost where I completely disagree with Teeb. These are not market-based solutions. But carbon is a market-based solution. And looking at it in 1984, we knew what the answer was, which was carbon pricing. And I want to put your mind uh, back to the 80s. There were a large number of US policy wonks who were facing the SO2, the sulfur dioxide problems. Remember when acid rain was everything? Okay, But we don't talk about that anymore. Why? It, it disappeared. Why did it disappear? SO2 pricing, tradable transferable markets. That's what it did. And it was in 1992 that the US EPA was convinced that it would do it. Now, SO2 is a smaller market, I accept, but that was the deal. And they estimated in 1992 that they would reduce emissions over 10 years by 25%. In the event, they reduced emissions by 50% in four years. In other words, in 1996. Now, COP3 was looming in Kyoto in 97. So the US policy wonks went in, really pumped. We've done it on SO2. We're going to do it on CO2. Pretty simple stuff, really. And they convinced everybody at Kyoto at what was the right solution, which was carbon pricing. <coughs> and that has become a bit of a rocky road over the years. Uh, we here in the city, I was one of them, wrote a paper published by the corporation in 1998, uh, which looked at how carbon trading could be brought to the city of London. I think it was emissions trading, I think we said at the time. And we created a shadow trading market. And in 2003, the EU, realizing it was late to the game, having made a promise to launch in April 2005, came here and we handed them everything on a plate, including English contracts. And so the market circled back into London due to that foresight. We're very proud of that. The market collapsed in December 2007. Uh, now, everybody says the market didn't work. No, the market worked absolutely fine. The politicians had issued twice as many permits, and the market worked that out. Supply grotesquely exceeds demand. Price crashes to seven cents at one point. 
In April 2005, we, the governments of Europe, do hereby swear to keep the price of carbon above 25 euros a ton. So work that one out. And in fact, the markets have recovered since Brexit, as somebody in Brussels cattily said to me before you blamed the Europeans, because the biggest liar had left the system. <laughs> so it's not exactly fair, but it is, there, there's a grain of truth in that. So the governments couldn't handle something as simple as that. And now we want them to do all sorts of checklists. We want them to measure carbon. We want to, pricing works. We know that. Pricing will work if it's there. And this is the important thing. I don't need to go around asking people what's the cost of their product and what's their carbon emissions. That should be in the cost. I don't do it for anything else. I don't do it for their landfill. I don't do it for their water. Markets are supposed to work. And we are supposedly people who believe in markets. And here we are, running around, doing paperwork, setting up parallel currencies, effectively, and then trying to arbitrage between these parallel currencies in terms we don't understand. It's really very, very confusing. So um, remember as well that the ESG movement began uh, really around 97, in my opinion, with the Enhanced Analytics Initiative. Uh, and the whole idea behind that was that there were extra financial numbers. Of course, that itself is a bit of a paradox. If you're taking a number and you then say, I'm going to use this number to use it for valuation, well, then it's immediately a financial number in its own right. It's difficult to see purely extra financial numbers. Otherwise, if they were truly extra financial, you wouldn't be using them at all. Right, so that brings us up, I think, roughly uh, to uh, 2005 again, because it was also in 2005 that Sean Kidney, and uh, I'm dear friends with him, and he did it on my desk before he had an office, was trying to lay out the green bond market. Now, Sean's market is one which initially, and still does, have a bit of a Queen Mary engine room diagram of how you issue a bond. Because you go there, then you get PwC to come in, and then that's authorized, and you go to a rating agency. It really is quite a, quite a complicated thing. But it's great for marketing. But do remember, it's a use of proceeds bond. I do promise to use this bond for these things. But, you know, I meant to build a 100 megawatt biomass plant, and it turned out it wasn't really practical. So I settled for 25. Try and get it back from me. Well, when you come to the market again for a green bond, you'll suffer. Well, maybe I don't. I'll just issue a normal bond. Because by the time I pay the difference to issue a green bond, yes, I get a lower rate, but it's all chewed up in the cost of issuance. So what's the point? It was a great marketing effort anyway. I got the marketing. Kudos for it, and I don't want people looking at the fact I didn't actually deliver. Do recall that the UK, a roughly 21st country in the world to issue a green bond, don't believe the local stuff. The overseas stuff was, you fit our taxonomy, you're not going to have a new taxonomy. They found it very hard to place without arm-twisting local firms. And it, as the 21st bond, what are they using it for? The green bond last year is being used to build roads. Hmm. So you know, you go figure this out. Right, so use of proceeds doesn't really work. And my proposal to Sean then was, well, I'd like to see a policy performance bond, in particular on governments. So think about an inflation-linked bond. That's a policy performance bond. Government says our policy is 2% inflation. If it's 5%, we pay you the difference, 3. If it's 7%, we pay you the difference, 5. You know, simple as that. Why not do the same thing for carbon targets? Well, everybody laughed at me. Uh, they said I wasn't a banker, although I had spent two years at Deutsche Morgan Grenfell. They said I didn't understand accounting, despite being a senior partner in an accounting firm. And they said I didn't understand finance, despite teaching it, which was kind of fun. 
So I gave up on the local market because it was all going down this ESG path, which, to be honest, has achieved nothing. If you actually look at the numbers, nothing has actually happened. And I took it to, and you're going to love this, the French. <laughs> the French loved the idea and asked me to write the first English blog on the Prime Minister's website. The French are strange. They actually publish blogs. We're thinking about doing this. Think about it. Everything opens. And the French public, to be fair, did have a few years of why are they talking about school meals? You know, well, then they realized the government ought to talk about school meals, but it might not do anything. Whereas here, every policy begins in a lie. How did the Daily Mail say that? Oh, no, I never told them. <laughs> it was a very interesting bit. Well, COP, uh, COP, COP uh, came in, in Paris in 2015, uh, and my team uh, went over there. I didn't personally. And one of them, Jaleel, uh, sat in an audience of about 250 people listening to the UK contingent over there. McKinsey was there, the usual thing. And, uh, and he asked them, what about a policy performance bond? Well, the McKinsey gentleman spent about 10 minutes uh, explaining why it wouldn't work until Jaleel said, excuse me, could you just explain policy performance bonds to the audience? Because I don't think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, and that was actually the case. So the French government rang us up in 2016 and said, we love this. It was probably the best idea we ever saw. We will publish a book. This wasn't so easy. They wanted it in French. So it took me about four times as long. And it's more accurately a booklet. It's about 120 pages. We published that in 2017. In 2018, you may have seen the issuance. It had nothing to do with the UK. Danone and Louis Dreyfus both issued bonds that paid basically higher interest if they failed to beat their targets. Through my Italian connections, Enel issued such a bond, quite a sizable one. The first UK bond was last year when uh, Trig, the Renewable Infrastructure Group, issued one for 500 million. But by this point, uh, in uh, 2020, the market on the continent was about 11 billion. Last year, it was $110 billion. So it's, it's gone vertical. But wait a minute. I said I wanted governments to issue it. The biggest policy risk in this area is government. And they change their minds when they feel like it. But they ask us to make 25-year investments on solar or wind or what have you. And they have broken their promises, frankly, repeatedly. And we as an industry are, I think the numbers are still roughly 8 to 1, betting against governments. We don't believe them. Uh, so, so, so there. And I was absolutely delighted last year when the Chilean government rang the French government to say, could they put them in touch with us? We have structured a bond which was issued in March this year. Prior to this, prior to March, I had audiences like you all going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's happened. It's a $2 billion bond. It was four times oversubscribed. And it's based on their 2030 targets. Uh, and it works like this. They have, they've split it into two halves, so you know, the BPS goes up. Um, the first half is reducing emissions from 109, sorry, 115 megatons to 95 megatons. And the second is increasing the renewables from 45% to 60% of their primary energy by 2030. But it's a 20-year bond. So if they fail to make it, they're going to be paying for an additional 12 years. They're very serious about it. And it's completely changed the Chilean market. You now know the government is concerned. You know the government's pinned. The government's finally putting skin in the game. And if they don't do it, uh, you're going to be able to be compensated. So you buy the bond as a hedge, 
in proportion to the amount that you mistrust the government. <laughs> but of course, why should you mistrust the government when they've issued the bond? And it's done exactly what's happened. It's crowding investment in Chile rapidly into sustainable energy. I do hasten to add, this is just the, you know, the carbon energy bit of, of life. I'm, ESG is wider, I accept it. So I'd like to close on what are those costs. Well, the first thing is, do recall that in 2020, we all lock, got locked up in our chicken coops for two months. Anybody here know how much all emissions went down during those two months? Was it 25%? Six. Six percent? Six. So every time... percent in China, is that correct? I don't know the Chinese numbers, but I do know the UK numbers, and it's six percent. In other words, when the people on Radio 4 tell you behavior change is going to make a difference and all that, they're lying. Right? You need to buy electricity from new sources. You need a new transportation system. You need new ways of producing cement. These are big infrastructure changes. So what are the costs? Well, there's two ways of doing it. I said we should be using markets. So what's the current price of carbon? Well, it's about 80 pounds, euros, dollars a ton at the moment. What do you do? You multiply the price by the volume. What's the volume? How much does the average Britain emit? Eight tons. I've been coming to these conferences for ages. These sound to me like basic numbers. <laughs> you, we emit about eight tons directly. We emit indirectly, arguably, about 12. In other words, through imports. So call it 10, because it's a nice round number. What's 80 times 10? It's 800. What do we use as the normal family size unit? Four. So that's 3,200 pounds per family per year for about 30 years. You never heard that number, did you? Why have you been wasting your time at all these conferences? <laughs> Seriously, right? That's just basic markets. Oh, wait a minute, say a lot of people. It's more complicated than that. OK, fine. Do you remember St. Stern? Well, Nick Stern in 2007 published a report. I often ask people, what's the report say? Well, he said climate change was really a big issue. Yeah, yeah, well, he did. But he actually said it will cost about 2% of GDP for 30 years. A bit more than 30 years, actually. Wait a minute. What is 2% of GDP per person? Hey, guess what? It's about 1,000 pounds a person. So anyway you come at this, you get to the same number. And that's really back to 1984, does society really want to pay that? But if they do, I think it's our obligation to be focused, at least in carbon, really on these hard markets and not waste our time doing a whole bunch of tick bashing. And we have the mechanisms to do it. And since Chile's issued it, you don't hear that here because the jobs are the boys and the girls. You know, it's what we call rent-seeking behavior in economics. <laughs> right. Does anybody up there want to tell you that you don't need a carbon audit? You don't need a carbon audit. Rip off your energy bill and give it to a real engineer who knows what they're doing and tell them cut this in half. That's the way to do it. You know that traveling less is that. And what should happen is when you travel, it should cost you the earth. Right? Not because I've done it to save the planet. You should be doing it because it makes economic sense. So diatribe over, but that's my contribution. And I think if we can go up this pathway, do remember that uh, functioning carbon markets, thanks to China, uh, now cover about 23% of all global emissions already. Uh, and in each country, like the UK, like the EU, that's about half of total emissions. So if our countries moved to 100%, we'd already be 46% of the way there. Thank you.